I, I like that intro, huh? Is that good? That'll get your motor going. Woo! Happy New Year. Good to have you with us. We've got a brand new year and a brand new Bible teaching, new study. We're working our way through 1 Timothy starting this weekend. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Unstoppable force, the church. You can also grab your sermon notes out and uh, follow along. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And uh, Matthew 16, 18, that's where Jesus said that. And if you want to be a part of the winning team, that's the team to be on because the gates of hell won't prevail against us. There is not a more exciting, compelling, fulfilling adventure this side of eternity than being a part of a biblically functioning community that is redeeming, rebuilding, and renewing people's lives. That's what Desert Breeze is all about. That's what the church is all about. And uh, this series will teach us, the church, more specifically, Desert Breeze Community Church, how to become everything Christ died to make us. That's kind of a summary statement of what this series is about. Now, let's look at what we're going to look at this morning. Here's the thesis statement for this morning's teaching. We're talking about doctrine matters. Doctrine matters because healthy doctrine promotes healthy faith, and healthy faith is a life of love. And a life of love is a life overwhelmed by God's love. You're going to see that. That's how we kind of walk through this text. You're going to see this, uh, this thesis statement in our text, verses 1 through 11, chapter 1. Let me say it again. So thesis statement, doctrine matters because healthy doctrine promotes healthy faith. If you've got a healthy faith, you're going to live a life of love. And that life of love is a life that's overwhelmed by God's love. So that's where we're headed. Let's pray, then we'll read our text and unpack these notes. So God, we're delighted to be here this morning. We love your presence. We love worshiping you. We love experiencing you. And as we embark upon a new year and a new series, we first want to thank you that by grace, through faith in Christ, we are your people, the church, an unstoppable force for redeeming, rebuilding, and renewing people's lives on this planet and in this series, teach us how we can become everything Christ died to make us. And in, in our study this weekend, may we see the indispensable value of healthy doctrine that promotes a healthy faith and a healthy faith that produces a life of love. And that life of love comes from a life overwhelmed by your love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. amen. So let me read the text here. And, uh, and then we'll p unpack our notes. First Timothy, and I'd encourage you through this series is to uh, read ahead, and, um, and that way it'll mean so much more to you when we gather on weekend services and go through this uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter here over the next month or so. And so, First um, Timothy chapter one, verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. 
The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of the Lord to us this weekend. Great text to begin the year on, and so grab your sermon notes there and take a look at this. Uh, First of all, anytime you study a book, there's three questions you need to ask. Who's the author, who's the audience, and what's his agenda? That kind of lays the foundation, gives you the context for understanding and, and interpreting the text. There is an art and science to biblical interpretation that you need to adhere to. Otherwise, you can try to make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean, and that's where you get a lot of horrible doctrine. And, uh, and so you need to always go back to the context. Who, what's the context? The context, who's the author? First of all, the author is, anybody know? Paul, the Apostle Paul, that's your fill in the blank, the Apostle Paul. Here's what's fascinating about Paul is that he was a persecutor of Christians. Listen, he killed Christians. He killed Christians. He has this uh, unbelievable encounter with the living, resurrected Christ Jesus, and he's transformed. And you can read about that in Acts 9. And so in verse 1 of our text, we see that it's the Apostle Paul Acts 9 shows us his conversion, and then he goes on to write 13 out of the 27 books in the New Testament. He's so transformed and used by God uh, to make an impact. And so let me me just say this, that in our day of 24-hour news, there's a major confusion. There's major confusion between opinions and facts. Would you agree with that? It's just crazy. And so there's a major... uh, major confusion between dogmatic assertions and defensible arguments. When he calls himself an apostle, capital A apostle, uh, the qualifications for being a capital A apostle would be that you have to have had an encounter with the resurrected Christ and be sent by him. So how do we know there is a God? Well, he showed up here. He came to this earth and he has apostles. He has people that he interacted with and then sent them out with the message and they wrote Bible. Paul wrote Bible because he had an encounter with with the risen Christ Jesus. And so these are not opinions. These are not dogmatic assertions. These are facts. These are defensible arguments. This is from the heart, the mind of God, of Christ Jesus and what he's writing here. And this is, so this is really important, carries a lot of weight. Now, Paul's conversion is a reminder that no one is beyond the reach of Jesus. Would you agree with that? So have you ever, you got some people in your life, you thought, oh my goodness, what is it going to take for them to come to faith in Jesus? I've got a few of those in my family. And I'm like, oh my goodness. But I go back to the life of Paul and I think, wow, if Paul can convert to Christianity, then 
anybody can because of the power of Christ Jesus working in his life. So the author, Apostle Paul, the audience, who's the audience? Young Pastor Timothy, that's your fill in the blank, Pastor Timothy, along with pastors in local churches like Desert Breeze. It's found in verse 2. And so this is one of three of the pastoral epistles, pastoral epistles or letters in the New Testament. Out of the 27 books, there's three of those books or letters that are written specifically to pastors who are leading churches. And uh, you can see the other two, 2 Timothy. You got 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. So what this tells us, is that, and as we will study through 1 Timothy, we'll also study through 2 Timothy. You can read Titus on your own. And while I was on my sabbatical this last summer, I studied through 1 and 2 Timothy. It was one of the reasons why I wanted to study at the beginning of the year. I thought it would just really be a good way to kind of recalibrate us as a church family, and because it certainly did that to my heart. But what we're going to find out through this study is that the church is to be led by Jesus Christ through a plurality of leaders known as elders and deacons. Now, you need to know that not all churches are led by a plurality of leaders known as elders and deacons. Some are CEO run, which are really unhealthy. There are many churches, uh, I'm not going to mention them, but I know a number of churches, and I think it really creates an unhealthy leadership. And, uh, And so Desert Breeze is led by Jesus Christ through a plurality of leaders known as elders and deacons. We'll talk about that through this series. And, And as you probably well know, an organization or a family business church rises or falls upon its leadership. And so, by, by the way, the, the size of a church is not a mark of whether the leadership is healthy or not. Did you know that? Because I've had people say, well, they must be doing something right. Look how big they are. Well, the bigness, size is not necessarily a mark that they're really healthy. I've seen some churches out there that were big and small that were moralistic, therapeutic, deistic in their approach. And they weren't really healthy. And yet they were attracting maybe a lot of people or very few people or whatever. It doesn't matter. What matters is that are they consistent with what the Bible teaches? You always go back to the Bible. So don't be overly impressed, okay, by what you see. Always go back to the Bible. Go back to Scripture. And uh, so what is biblical leadership about? Biblical leadership is about stewardship and servanthood and uh, stewardship and servanthood. It's about using what God has given you, that's stewardship. So us as leaders and people here at Desert Breeze, we're going to use what God has given us to help as many people as possible to find their deepest satisfaction in Christ. That's servanthood. And so I'm going to use my giftings to help as many people as I can to find their deepest satisfaction in God. Why is that? Because sin is what happens when we're not satisfied with God. So if I can help you to find your satisfaction in God, we're making some progress there. That's the essence of the Christian life. And, um, and so I'm going to serve you to help you to do that. I love what Paul says. This isn't on your notes. You can write it down, but it's a good verse. 2 Corinthians one twenty four. 2 Corinthians one twenty four. He says to the church there in Corinth, as he's kind of pastoring them through some difficulties, he says, not that we lord it over your faith. I don't lord it over your faith, but I work with you for your joy so that you may be established in your faith, that you may stand firm in your faith. How do I stand firm in my faith? By finding my deepest satisfaction in Christ. That's how. And so that's my job. That's what we want to do. And so let me ask you this question. Who are you helping and who is helping you to find your deepest satisfaction in Christ? Who's your Timothy and who's your Paul? 
So, so if you're receiving and your heart's being stirred and you're being motivated and you're growing in your relationship with God, then who are you giving that to? How, how are you helping others to do the same? That's called discipleship, by the way. We'll get a chance to look at that through 1 Timothy. And so, so, so this letter is written from the Apostle Paul, carries a lot of weight right from the mouth of Christ Jesus. This is to young Timothy along with pastors in local churches like Desert Breeze. But what's their agenda? Well, here's the agenda. What's his agenda? How to behave. So how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress. The word buttress means foundation of the truth. So he's telling us this is how you find a healthy church. This is what a healthy church looks like. By the way, that's based on 1 Timothy 3.15. The verse that precedes that, Paul is saying, hey, just in case I'm delayed in coming to you, I want to write this down so that you know how people should behave in the church, how the church should function, what the church should look like, what is a healthy church. And, um, and so that's what he says here. So how to, how to behave? How do you pick a healthy church? And let's kind of go through these, this phrase. So the agenda, how to behave in the household of God. Household of God really is telling us something, that the church is a family. And you can't be family by yourself. You can only do that through commitment and accountability to other Christians in a, in a local church setting like Desert Breeze. So what kind of... a emphasis does the Bible put on local churches like Desert Breeze? Well, the church, the word church is used uh, some 115 times in the New Testament. The word means ecclesia, called out, called out from the world into the family of God, to be a part of the family of God, this unstoppable force. And, um, and so it's used 115 times, but 92 of those times it's speaking specifically of a local church like Desert Breeze. So I would say that local churches are really, really important in, in God's mind and heart. So out of 115 times that word church is used, 92, it's about local churches like Desert Breeze. Now listen to me. And it's a good, good thing to start off the year with this. There is no way that you will, you will be able to grow spiritually apart from a deep involvement in a community of other believers. I've been doing this a long time, okay? I've been doing this my whole life, this church thing, being a part of a church family. And I've seen a lot of people crash and burn. And usually one of the common denominators is they're not connected to a local church family where they're involved, and when you're not, you set yourself up to crash and burn big time. And, uh, and so that's important. Next phrase here, which is the church of the living God. Oh, I love that. The church of the living God. God's here. God's with us this morning is what it's saying. And, and there is a dynamic of God's presence when we gather regularly here at Desert Breeze that you can't experience on your own. So as we gather regularly, there's something that happens in our hearts that, you, that can't happen out there by yourself. And then the next phrase there is pillars and buttress or foundation of the truth. So as the foundation goes, so goes the building. So, so the, the foundation, and as, so you can only build as high as deep as you've laid the foundation. You agree with that? If you're familiar with construction, you know that. I worked uh, at the Hyatt Regency when they were building that here in town. It was fascinating how, how deep that foundation went so that they could build it high. 
So you need to have a good solid foundation for your faith so that you can build your relationship with God very high and strong. Matthew 7, 24 through 27, Jesus said to storm-proof your life You do that by building it on the rock, by hearing his words and obeying them. So hearing doctrine and then putting them to practice. It was interesting, I saw this last year on 60 Minutes, the Millennium Tower in San Francisco, a luxury residential high rise, it's the sixth tallest building in San Francisco, has sunk 17 inches and tilted 14 inches. Anybody see that? Are familiar with that? It's really fascinating. I mean, that's scary considering it's in an earthquake zone. And so it's not, it's not very stable, a lot of lawsuits. I, I saw that Joe Montana owns an apartment in there. And so it's just really interesting scenario. But, but here's the deal. You need to be connected in a local church family like Desert Breeze where there's healthy doctrine being proclaimed so that you can build a solid foundation and on that foundation you can build your building, your life high and strong because storms are coming and your ability to get through those storms is directly related to your connection to a local church family and having a rock solid foundation for your faith and how stable that is. And and that idea of this, uh, I was thinking about that this morning, pillar and buttress. Pillars are how high you build. Buttress would be the foundation, how deep you go. And so not only do you need to know what you believe, but you need to know why you believe what you believe. So if you don't have a good solid foundation, the why, the what is going to come down when you hit the storms. So, so, the, so the what of, what of what you believe should be established on the why, why I believe it. It's got to be rock solid. And so we'll certainly have that as we work through 1 Timothy and then 2 Timothy. And so here, let's talk about this. Now let's get into the into the meat of of all of this. That's important, that's introduction. He starts the letter with that, but now let's get to really this idea of doctrine. Doctrine matters because, okay, so let's go back real quick. Author, Apostle Paul, audience, young pastor Timothy, along with pastors in, in local churches like Desert Breeze, and then the agenda is how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So here we go. Doctrine matters because, number one, healthy doctrine promotes a healthy faith. Healthy doctrine promotes a healthy faith. I get that idea of a healthy faith. It's from verse 10 of our text. He says sound doctrine. The word literally means healthy doctrine. So you need to have healthy doctrine. And let's look at verses three and four. And as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge. That word charge is a strong word, military word to command or order. So we've had to do that here at Desert Breeze. We've had to say, hey, stop teaching what you're teaching. It's not good, healthy doctrine. We've done that here. And that's what he's saying to Timothy, saying, hey, go to those folks and tell them, stop teaching what they're teaching. It's wrong doctrine. It's unhealthy doctrine. And, uh, and so certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. The word different doctrine means teaching that deviates from the truth. And then he kind of expounds on that a little bit, nor to devote themselves to myths, which would be fiction or fable, and endless genealogies, which promote speculations, opinions, and theories. By the way, you can't build your foundation of your life on opinions and theories. It's got to be rock solid. But here's the, here's the point that he makes. Rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith... Remember what I said about leadership? It's about stewardship and servanthood. You see that word a couple times in our text, stewardship. 
So, you, so what he's saying here to young Timothy, you have been entrusted, that's what stewardship is, you have been entrusted with God's word, stewardship from God, and when you handle it appropriately, you have healthy doctrine which will produce a healthy faith. That, that's what he's saying. So, so your efforts in having good healthy doctrine is going to bring about a healthy faith in people's lives. Don't be chasing rabbits. Don't go after speculations and all these crazy things and looking for some kind of new, new teaching out there. He says, teach what I've told you to teach. This is rock solid stuff. So the stewardship from God that is by faith, you have been entrusted with God's word, stewardship from God. And when you handle it appropriately, healthy doctrine, it will produce a healthy faith. Now, if you're going to have healthy doctrine, you must discern the difference between, and I've got this on your notes, the teachings of men. You got to know the difference between teachings of men Mark 7, 7, and 8, teachings of demons, 1 Timothy 4, 1, and teachings of God, John 6, 45, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, and 2 Timothy 3, 16, and 17. So what would be teachings of men? I think the teachings of men would be some of the liberal, more liberal churches that are in our community, that are in our community and worldwide, and then there's also the health and wealth gospel, which would be teachings of men. What about teachings of demons? I think the, the Mormons would fit into that category. I think Jehovah Witnesses would fit into that category. I think that Islam would fit into that category, especially when you f see how they uh, acquired their teaching. Uh, take, for instance, Joseph Smith. How did he uh, get the Book of Mormons and Doctrine of Covenants and all these? It was through the angel Moroni, yeah. I, I, I believe the angel Moroni was a demon. I think it's demonic. And, uh, and so... That's that's would be teachings of demons. I think there would be other things that would fit in that category. But you, that's the three questions you got to ask: Is that a teaching of man? I see on Christian TV teachings of men. I see unhealthy teaching that's out there that's that's not good healthy theology, and it really wrecks people's lives. There's teachings of demons and teachings of God. Teachings of God come from God. The source would be the Old and New Testament. Obviously, you have to understand the art and science of biblical interpretation. Maybe we'll get a, a chance to kind of walk through some of that in this series, but we'll talk about that. I talk about that in the game of life. We go through that, and every weekend I practice that when I get up here. We practice the art and science of biblical interpretation. I, I do it without telling you what I'm doing, and I just kind of walk through that. And so, um, so teachings from God or come from God are about God and the things in relation to God. He's the object of those teachings. And for the glory of God, he's the end. He's the goal. It's about the glory of God. It's always about the glory of God. That would be a good criteria uh, to kind of walk through, kind of a general criteria. But to say doctrine doesn't matter, and I've heard people say this, to say that doctrine doesn't matter, only how you live matters is itself a doctrine. It's the doctrine of salvation by works. To say doctrine doesn't matter, only preaching Jesus matters. I've heard that. I've heard that a lot. But the moment you ask them, well, who is Jesus and what did he do? The only way to answer is to lay out doctrine. You can't get away from doctrine. You can't get away from doctrine. To say that only doctrine matters, that only doctrine matters, is to fall prey to the dead orthodoxy of the Pharisees who worshiped God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. So you can, you can have all the right doctrine, but it not transform your life like the Pharisees. And um, 
Matthew 15, 8 talks about that they worshiped him, they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. So, healthy doctrine promotes healthy faith. How's that? It determines the quality of our relationship with God. That's your next fill in the blank. Determines the quality of our relationship with God. So we go back to that word sound doctrine in verse 10 of our text. So healthy versus disease doctrine is what he's talking about here. Paul is saying disease doctrine eats away at your spiritual health or your faith. Uh, Disease doctrine eats away at the quality of your relationship with God. In other words, if your relationship with God isn't vibrant, growing, and flourishing, if you're not filled with love, joy, and peace, it may be because your understanding of biblical doctrine is shallow and weak or distorted and diseased. Because the more you understand biblical doctrine, oh my goodness, the more it's going to create this vibrant, growing, flourishing life in God through Christ Jesus. So it determines the quality of your relationship with God. It also determines what you convey to others about God. That's your next fill in the blank. What you convey to others about God. People should be able to infer from your life that Christ is more desirable and satisfying than all that life can give or suffering and death can take away. When people watch your life, what are they, what are they reading about Christ? What do they see? People should be able to infer from your life that Christ is more desirable and satisfying than all that life can give or suffering and death can take away, that he is better than the best times in your life and bigger than the worst times in your life. Well, how's that? Well, you are what you love, and you worship what you love, and you might not love what you think. So how do you know? How do you know what you really love? You may say you love God, but how do you know what you love? What you love, you talk about. Just look at what you talk about. Matthew 12, 34 says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A heart filled with the overflowing joy of the gospel will want to share that source of joy with everyone. Believe me. Believe me. I've got to pull back the reins often because I spend a considerable amount of time in prayer and Bible study, and I love that, but my heart, it gets so filled up, I just, I want to go off on everybody. In, in a healthy way, and that sounds crazy going off on them, but, and so I have to pull back the reins and say, oh my goodness, do you understand who Christ is? Do you understand what he's done for us? Man, I want to talk about it 24-7. I, I like football. I do. It's playoff, playoff time. I love the intro video. Yeah, baby. Do you see the Cardinals there when they went there? That was the only great highlight in the whole season, huh? <laughs> If you're a Cardinal fan, oh boy, that was probably the best thing of their whole season right there, but that probably wasn't even from their season. That was probably from a couple years ago, wasn't it? I mean, there were some good things from time to time, but, but oh my goodness, I, I love all of that, and I'll talk, I talk football, I can talk politics, I can talk a lot of stuff, but I love talking about Jesus. I absolutely love to talk about God's word. But guess what? You're not going to talk about God's word if you're not filling your heart up with his word, if you're not spending time with him. So it's not like kind of forcing the conversation or coercing it or manipulating people. I got to get a word in edgewise here so I can talk about Jesus. I know I need to do that. No, no, you're not going to need to do that. You're going to want to do that because your heart is filled up with him. So start with just spending time with him legitimately, knowing him, experiencing him. 
If you had the cure to cancer, would you keep it a secret? No. We have something infinitely and eternally better. And so it, it goes back to this. Here's the next statement. Here's the next statement. So, uh, so it determines the quality of your relationship with God, what you convey to others about God, and then whether, whether good or bad times make or break us, whether good or bad times make or break us. Your doctrine is going to help to determine that. Now, think about this. If someone is loving, wise, and powerful as God, think about God just for a minute. If someone as loving, wise, and powerful as God loves me, has gone to infinite lengths to save me, has promised to never leave me or forsake me, why would I ever be envious, anxious, bitter, discontent, or feel hopeless? Why? See, your circumstance-based anxiety, anger, depression is a statement to God that you don't think he has your best interest at heart. So many of our personal and most practical problems are doctrinal ones. Either we don't know the truth, we don't know what the Bible teaches about God and about our lives and about our circumstances and all of that, or we fail to connect it to the specific areas of our lives where we are most restless so that it creates spiritual health in us. You've got to learn how to take the truths of who Christ is and what he's done and apply them specifically to where your heart is most restless, most anxious and angry and depressed. If you don't know how to do that, that's why we do small groups. That's why I do what I do on weekend services is to teach you how to do that. Then the small groups, you begin to walk that out. You live that out. You can come into the small group and say, man, my life is not going so good. I am really stressed out. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. And you got people there that can help you to, to apply the truth of who Christ is specific to your circumstances to help you so that you have a foundation for your faith so you're not taken out by the difficulties of your life. So, so doctrine, doctrine, healthy doctrine promotes a healthy faith that determines the quality of your relationship with God, what you convey to others about God, whether good or bad times make or break us. And then here's the next one, a healthy faith is a life of love. So what is a healthy faith? So doctrine matters because healthy doctrine promotes a healthy faith. A healthy faith is a life of love. So as you're growing in your understanding of doctrine, it should create, this is one of the markers of it. So as you, you study God's word, it should create love, greater capacity to love God and others. Look at verse five. The aim of our charge is love. And this love comes from, that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So John 13, 34 through 35, this was right after Jesus had washed his disciples' feet. And this is what he said. He says this, that all men will know that you are my disciples by your what? Anybody? Love. love. Your love for one another. So here's the question. As you've walked with Christ, however long it's been, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, your love capacity should be growing if you're truly following him. You should be growing in love, your capacity to love God and, and, and love others. John 13, 34, and 35. And he tells us how this, is, uh, this comes from. Each of these demonstrate and develop love. Did you notice that? That issues from a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. Let's look at each one of these. because So these demonstrate our love, but also help to develop love. So pure heart, pure heart, no idols. No idols. Pure heart would be no idols. 
nothing will keep you from the fullness of joy that intimacy with God can bring except, except idolatry. Listen, there's no joy, there's no joy better than intimacy with God. There's a joy in, that's found in intimacy with God that all the success in this world can't give and all the suffering in this world can't take from you. Did you know that? And the only thing that can keep you from this joy, this joy-filled life that comes as a result of your intimacy with God is idolatry, idolatry. So we gotta, we gotta define idolatry. What is idolatry? Turn to the person next to you and see if they know what idolatry is. What is idolatry? Real quick, do that. Okay, so if you, were, if you were defining idolatry something like this, it's a simple definition actually, don't complicate it here. I'm talking to myself, okay. Uh, it's loving anything more than you love God. Were you guys thinking along those lines? Okay, yep, cool, you got it. That's good, loving anything more than you, you love God. By the way, our hearts, I don't know if you've looked lately, our hearts are idol factories. Would you agree with that? If, if you don't, you haven't looked at your heart lately, because we tend to love anything and everything more than we love God. That's the battle within our heart. And so if you love anything more than you love God, you will crush it under the weight of your unrealistic expectations and it will control you. When you seek it, it will disappoint you. When you get it, it will devastate you when you lose it. You must identify what is competing for your heart's deepest loyalties and affections and not necessarily love it less because it may be a good thing. It may be a marriage. It may be your kids. It may be your job. So don't necessarily love it less, but love Christ more, and you'll love it appropriately. I learned that. That was probably one of the best things that I learned in my marriage relationship because I tended to, to take my wife a very good thing and, and, and turn her into an ultimate thing, and I tried to get from her what I should have been getting from Christ, and I nearly wrecked my marriage. But when I began to come to him to find what I needed to get from him, he began to fill my heart up, and I began to love him more than I loved my wife, and then I began to love my wife well after that. It only took me two decades to figure that out, okay? And I'm still working on it, okay? I'm still working on it, but, but that's, that's just the way it is. So loving God with all of your heart is being satisfied with him more than spouse, more than children, more than wealth, more than health, more than anything in life. And so that stirs up that, that love. So as you got that solid foundation, healthy, healthy doctrine produces healthy faith. A healthy faith is an increased capacity to love. And, and so... It comes, it issues from a pure heart, no idols. It issues from a good conscience. This is no unresolved issues in your life. So our conscience is like a smoke alarm that must be calibrated by God's word. Everybody have a smoke alarm in their house? If you don't call Phoenix Fire, they'll install one for you. They'll get that in there for you because uh, it's horrible if you don't because you could get burned up in the middle of the night. But here's what's crazy. Even if you do, that thing has to be calibrated. How many when you cook, the smoke alarm goes off? Show of hands. Is it because you're really bad, a bad cook? Or is it just because it's oversensitive smoke alarm? Could be that you're a bad cook, okay. Then you don't need to mess with the smoke alarm. We need to work on your cooking, okay. Maybe not, but, but you, if you have an oversensitive smoke alarm, an oversensitive conscience, I know people that are like that, slightest little thing, oh, I need to, oh. They're bothered about everything. 
they're troubled because they think they've done something wrong when in reality they haven't. It's overly sensitive. And then you can have one that's not sensitive enough. I've seen people's houses burning down. They're totally oblivious to it. Their lives, I mean, not literally their house, you know. But their, but their lives, they're like, what the heck? Why are you doing that? Why are you chasing that? You're going to crash. Your, your, your life is on fire and you don't even know it. And I'm here to try to put it out, but you, you're clueless. And so that's because your conscience is seared. You don't know. So, so our conscience is like a, a smoke alarm that must be calibrated by God's word, by good solid doctrine. And it's very objective. And so when we violate God's word, when we, when we go past his boundaries, we should be aware of that and go, oh my goodness, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't go there. I shouldn't do that. And so what do we do? We, have, we, we repent. So, but you gotta know the difference between true guilt and false guilt. So here's what true guilt is. True guilt would be the fact, the fact, so you know it's objective. You have violated a boundary marker from God's word. By the way, his boundary markers, the Ten Commandments, God's laws are are, it's out of his love and wisdom, in his love and wisdom. He said, this is how I want you to live, and this is really a great way to live. It's really a great way to live. When you cross over these boundary markers, it's to your own uh, demise, because I know how I wired, wired you up. I know how I created you, and this is in your best interest. So true guilt would be the fact, with or without the feelings, because I've had people say, well, I don't feel guilty. It doesn't matter whether you feel guilty. You violated the boundary marker. You're living outside of God's directives. It's totally unhealthy. You're setting yourself up to crash and burn because it's not in your best interest. God gave us those because they're in our best interest. He loves us. He has our best interest at heart. And so that's true guilt. True guilt is fact with or without the feelings. False guilt would be the feelings without the fact. I feel troubled, but you can't put your finger on anything specifically. And that can be put on to you by others. If you're around abusive people or, or hard to get along people, sometimes they can put false guilt on you, trying to get you to jump through their hoops so that they can feel better about themselves. So really unhealthy dynamics in relationships. And so what does it mean no unresolved issues? What does that mean? It means that you have repented of your true guilt. But you've got to be in God's word to keep recalibrating your heart to make sure that you're living according to his standards. How do you do that? Well, the Lord's Prayer gives us the way to do that, that part where it says, forgive us of our sins, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those that have sinned against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we're saying, God, you're the one that establishes the boundaries for me for my own good, for my own protection, out of your love and wisdom. Oh, my goodness, thank you for that. So help me to stay within those boundaries because I want to do that to honor you, to love you, to show your glory. And then the third one is a sincere faith, no pretense. So this love, a healthy faith is a life of love that issues from a pure heart, no idols, good conscience, no unresolved issues. And then a sincere faith, no pretense, no game playing or going through the motions. You didn't come here just to check the church box this morning. How many had a hard time getting up this morning? Had a hard time really working on it? You guys are all obviously kind of morning people. You guys, most of you morning people? Anybody not a morning person? Wow, you did good to get here this morning. How about over here? Whoa! Woo! Now wake up, wake up. 
Okay, no, you did good because usually the, the non-morning people are a little bit later. They're in the second service and they even get in here late sometimes. They go, what the? You had all morning to get ready. We started at 11 here, not 11.45 or 12. But so, so yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. Okay, no pretense. Oh, no, no pretense. Okay, so when you came here, you didn't just come here just to check the church box, just to go through the motions. Okay, we did that, honey. What are we going to do next? Well, we got a game on. Let's go watch the game. Ha-ha! Whatever. It's like, come on. No, no, you came here to encounter the living God. You came here to know God. If you're real with him, he'll be real with you. Get rid of the game playing and the entertainment. You don't need to be entertained. You don't want to be entertained. You want to have an encounter with the living God. I do. I do. I don't need, you know, I don't need the music to be pretty and to stir me and to have, you know, lights and all, whatever. I mean, I'm not, I'm not down. Is that, I'm not down on churches that do that. That's actually good, isn't it? Down. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not down on them. I'm not what? I'm not bashing them. Thank you. I'm not, I'm, I need help this morning. I'm not bashing them. I'm just saying, hey, if that's what they want to do, that's cool. But don't depend on all the, all the props. Learn to connect with God. That's what we want. No pretense. That's what we're talking about here. Worship is an act of ascribing ultimate worth and value to God in such a way that it engages and energizes your whole being. Your mind, your emotions, your will. By the way, faith is, is truth entering the head. So this is what should happen week in and week out when we gather. So there should be truth entering the head, igniting the heart, and out working through the hands. You walk out of here changed. You become, your, your, your character has changed. Your conduct has changed. So faith is truth entering the head. That's why we, when we sing these songs, the songs, we're very careful about the songs we pick. And then we even put verses up so that you can think and you can reflect and think deeply about those so that the Holy Spirit can make that logic come on fire in your heart. Logic on fire in your heart, down in your heart. It ignites. There's this ravishing, ravishing sense of the beauty and the glory of God. So it goes from your head into your heart and outworks through our hands where your character and conduct has changed. So healthy faith is a life of love that issues from a pure heart, no idols, good conscience, no unresolved issues, sincere faith, no pretense, and a healthy doctrine promotes a healthy faith, and a healthy faith is a life of love, and a life of love is a life overwhelmed by God's love. It's overwhelmed by God's love. Verses 6 through 11. We are loved by the greatest love in the universe. Did you know that as, as followers of Christ? We are loved by the greatest love in the universe. Human romance and friendship are glorious, are a glorious experience, but even the best is a gift and a pointer to the ultimate experience of knowing God's infinite and eternal love. Psalm 63.3, his steadfast love is better than life. His steadfast love. I know you're sitting next to maybe family and friends, and I know that they love you like crazy, but no one loves you like Jesus, okay? Even their love is a dim glimpse of his love for you, okay? And so that's what you need to keep in mind. In fact, 1 John 4, 18 and 19, it says that his perfect love chases away the fears in our lives, 
And so when you're made perfect in his love, you want to eliminate the, the worry, the anxiety, the depression. It's by being perfected in his love. It's enjoying his love. And we love him because why? He first loved us. So, so, so do you hear... Do you hear how that works its way out in our life? So, so you might leave here and say, okay, I'm going to be a more loving person in 2019. And I'm going to say, good luck. <laughs> Try hard because it's probably not going to work. But here, here's how you can become a more loving person. You want to become a more loving person? Is that you need to experience what the prodigal son experienced in Luke 15, when the, when the father saw him at a distance and ran to him, and literally in the text it says, and he smothered him with kisses. You need to be, you need to be smothered with the kisses of the father regularly. You need to be swept up into his arms of love, God's love, and smothered with his kisses. Believe me, you will love him in response and you will love others, even people who despise you and hate you. Because when you have the love of the Father in your heart, yeah, you can even, you can even love people that are against you. And that's what's so amazing about it. His perfect love chases away the fears and we love him because he first loved us. Now, what's interesting here is that in verses 6 through 8 of our text, there were those who were not teaching the law or God's word right. And, and in verses 9 through 11, we actually have a list of the Ten Commandments. Now, let me ask you this. This is a quick question you can ask the people that are sitting next to you. One last question I'll give you to kind of to talk about. But is the Bible, when you approach the Bible, is the Bible primarily a book about what we must do to be right with God, or is it primarily a book about what God has done to make us right with him? Because how you read the Bible, if you read it from one perspective or the other, it's going to make a difference in how you interpret it. So is it about what we must do, or is it about what he has done? Real quick, ask, ask the person next to you. Okay, so is the Bible primarily, what would you guys say? I've, I've taught you guys this, so if you've been with us, so you guys know, because you can see how it makes a difference in your, in your interpretation of the Bible. And so evidently, these guys were teaching it as, as if it was something that you must do. Kind of Aesop's fables, boys and girls. Let me teach you some good morals. You need to be good out there. If you want God to be good to you, if you want his blessing, if you want his acceptance, then you need to live at a certain standard in your life. That's called moralism. See, the Bible is not primarily a book about what we must do to be right with God. It's primarily a book about what God has done to make us right with him. So you always approach the Bible from that perspective. You always come at the Bible and go, wait a minute, what he's done for me? Oh my goodness, through Jesus Christ? I've been forgiven of all my sins. I've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. I've been brought into his family. I'm a child of God. I'm lavished with his love. He'll never leave me or forsake me. I'm guaranteed a place in heaven. Wow, that's what is ours. And so when you approach the scriptures, that's how you approach it from that mindset. There are only two religions 
And I, I say that, this is on your notes, ways of relating to God, there's works or grace. And I put Christianity in that. I know oftentimes we don't call Christianity religion, but, but it is in, in the broadest sense, in the big sense of world religions. And so there's really only two religions. And this is what separates actually Christianity from every other major religion in our world. Every other major religion, listen, if people say, well, Christianity is just like every other belief system. Well, actually it isn't. Because every other belief system is about works. Christianity is about grace. I put the verse there, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and I've, I've defined it here. Works is this, I obey, therefore God accepts and blesses me. Grace, God accepts me and blesses me in Christ, therefore I want to obey. So the next fill in the blank on your notes is the law is the diagnosis of our problem. The law is the diagnosis of our problem. So when we look at the law, the law is meant to diagnose our problem. The law cannot make us right with God. The the law or works can't save you. It can only diagnose your problem. So in his love, he has given us his standard. His standard is his character. And and, and not only does it represent his character, it represents how he wants us to live. In fact, Jesus defined it. He summarized the Ten Commandments by saying, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So he had summarized the whole ten, Ten Commandments in those two commands. The first command represents the first four of the ten, and the second command represents the next six. And so, so that's, that's that. The law is the diagnosis of our problem, and the glorious gospel is the cure. Verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That's the last verse of our text. And then the the Apostle Paul moves into explaining the transformation that happened in his heart, and he talks about the glorious gospel, and that's what we're going to talk about next week, next weekend. Uh, We're going to talk about the glorious gospel. It's, It's absolutely amazing. We need to hear that, and you typically hear it week in and week out here at Desert Breeze. And so the law is the diagnosis of our problem. The glorious gospel is the cure. And here's the next one. Grace is celebrated most joyfully when sin is grieved most deeply. So when we see through the law how much cancer we've got, how bad we are, how messed up we are, then we're drawn to Jesus who's the cure and he's our rescuer. And so grace is celebrated most joyfully when sin is grieved most deeply. Now, look at that last statement on your notes. Only those who know that salvation comes by God's indispensable and costly love, not their works, have an inner dynamic of grateful joy that empowers the greatest loving works. That's that's the essence of the Christian life. Now, let me end with a story here. We're almost finished. Quick story here. Help us to understand this a little bit more. This last summer, when Nancy and I were on our sabbatical, it was June, July, the world was captivated by the story of 12 members of a Thailand soccer team, ages 11 to 17, and their 25-year-old assistant coach who ventured about two and a half miles into a cave after uh, soccer practice. How many remember that story? pretty crazy story. We, we kind of were riveted to the TV and all the reports and on our phone kind of following that. We were praying like crazy for those little guys that, that somehow they would figure this out because I thought for sure they were going to die there and we were praying that God would give the rescuers wisdom on what to do. Heavy rains partially flooded the cave, trapping the group inside. Efforts to locate the group were hampered by rising water levels and strong currents. The rescue effort expanded into a massive operation amid intense worldwide public interest. Hundreds of volunteers, military specialists, and corporate experts arrived 
from around the world to offer assistance in rescue. After nine days of advancing through narrow passages in muddy waters, two divers found the group alive on an elevated rock. That was after nine days they had been lost. Rescue organizers discussed various options for extracting the group, including whether to teach them basic diving skills to enable their early rescue, wait until the new entrance was found or drilled, or wait for the floodwaters to subside at the end of the monsoon season months later. After days of pumping water from the cave system and a break from the rain, the rescue teams hastened to get everyone out before the next monsoon rain, which was expected to bring a potential two inches of additional rainfall. Now, what's interesting about this story is that the journey through the cave to the team took six hours against the current and five hours to exit with the current, even for experienced divers. The group of 13 were successfully rescued from the cave, but it wasn't without sacrifice. There was one fatality, Saman Kumnan, a 37-year-old former Thai Navy SEAL who came out of retirement and volunteered to help in the rescue effort, died of asphyxiation while returning to a staging base in the cave after delivering supplies of air to rescue that group of 13. Now, why were our hearts so deeply moved by the example of this Thai Navy SEAL? I know mine was. Because there's nothing more beautiful than the demonstration of indispensable and costly love. Indispensable? There was no way out for these young guys. Someone needed to go in and rescue them. Costly? This guy gave his life. He came out of retirement and gave his life to rescue these young guys. Jesus didn't come out of retirement but came from heaven to earth voluntarily to rescue us and reconcile us to the Father. That's the gospel. And on the cross, Jesus Christ went into the great cavern of darkness and God's judgment so that you might be brought home, brought into the family, brought to the table forever. There's no love like his love for us. We are recipients of his indispensable and costly love. Indispensable, there was no other way for us to be reconciled to the Father. Costly, Jesus, the God of the galaxies, gave his life for you. Costly, unbelievably costly, indispensable and costly love. And that, my friends, awakens our love for him and others as we build our lives on the foundation of his word, healthy doctrine. Let's pray. So, Father God, we want to be right in the middle of what you are up to in 2019, and that is building your church against the gates, against which the gates of hell won't prevail. Help us to see more than ever that there is no way that any of us can be all that you died to make us apart from deep involvement in a community of other believers like Desert Breeze. Help us to discern healthy doctrine so that we can have a healthy faith full of love as our lives are more and more overwhelmed by your indispensable and costly love for us, we pray in Jesus' beautiful and glorious name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys.